0: Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible verse by verse and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God.
1: Tonight we're going to be in 1 Kings 3. Well, the last time we looked at the harsh reality of King Solomon's leadership, uh, how he had to ascend to the throne of Israel and the things he unfortunately, at such a young age, was you know, heavy responsibilities and burdens that were put on him as soon as he ascended to the throne. Tonight we're going to look at really a kickoff to see uh, what King Solomon's style was like. And then I'm going to make at the end some comparisons between his style and King David's style and then two, what he asked for to lead the nation. So we're gonna jump in, starting at verse one. It said, now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. So you see that King Solomon had some building projects of his own to do. Uh, tonight we're going to look at how Solomon sets forth a course of action that sows the seeds of destruction for his own life in the nation of Israel. Now, I'm just going to let you know beforehand, this is the week of confusion. I said this on Sunday. I'm going to try to make it really understandable because there's a lot of information. I'm going to tell you right now that Solomon was a mixed bag. So you're going to hear me say, oh, look at this. And he did a great thing. It says he loved the Lord. And then we're going to say, oh, but he married these foreign women and all these women. So as we go back and forth, you're going to see that Solomon was really a dual-natured guy, uh, but unfortunately, his, his habits and his ways, and it took years to happen, as it does with us too, led him down this bad path. So the first thing we see is he made a treaty with Pharaoh of Egypt when he should have trusted in the Lord. Now, treaties are a good thing. You know, we should leave, live peaceably with other nations and other people and other, you know, whatever, Uh, But his treaties were based on, you know, you would make a treaty and then the king of your neighboring country would give you his daughter to be your wife, and there'd be a dowry, and it would assure that there would be peace between the two nations. This was very common. And unfortunately, I think probably King Solomon uh, justified a lot of his actions. Um, Of course, the Bible says not to multiply wives, right? And this is interesting, Pastor Paul and I should probably have this discussion after service, but um, this was not his first wife. I'm pretty sure that this was not his first wife. When he talks about the Shunammite and Song of Solomon, that seems to be Solomon in his earlier years, where he understood love. He understood uh, a person, you know, a, a bond. And then later on in life he's got all these wives, hundreds of wives and concubines. I mean, how do you, you know, love somebody? I mean, how can you Share love with all those so many people involved in your house and your relationship, it gets quite frankly, it gets weird. You know, I mean, we talked about, and again, it's um, in the hadith about the, <clears throat> the, the glorious jihadist who goes to heaven supposedly in the 72 virgins on 72 beds. I mean, that is such a twisted idea of what happiness really should look like. Um, I mean, stuff gets confusing after a while. I mean, the fleshly person would say, hey, that's a great thing, but that's a fleshly person. It it makes no sense, right? It doesn't end. So the second thing we looked at is that he married Pharaoh's daughter, okay? Um, It was a business deal in addition to a treaty. It was a business deal, and again, I read this in 1 Kings 2, Deuteronomy 17, so I won't read it again, but if you're interested or you talk to a cultist or somebody espouses polygamy, It's Deuteronomy 17, 17, not to multiply your wives. Now, people will say, but they did it in the Bible. They did a lot of things in the Bible. They killed people in the Bible. They stole from each other, you know. They sold people into slavery. It It didn't make it right. You know, it's so funny when people do that and they try to attack the Bible. The Bible records history. It doesn't mean it was all good history. You know, God clearly said, this is my law and this is wrong. And people paid the price for disobeying God didn't happen right away, but eventually it happened. I just want to read real quick verse, 1 Kings 9.16. 1 Kings 9.16. Now this is, kind of gives us, again, not completely in chronological order. It's a parenthetical statement. Sometimes uh, in the successive chapters it refers back to something. So this appears to be what this is referring to. It says, Pharaoh, king of Egypt had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So, hey, why trust in God when you got the Egyptians? You know, you got some neighboring cities that are on your outskirts. Egyptians come in, they take these people out, give it to Israel. Hey, sure, I'll take your daughter as wife. Probably should have trusted in God, but... This was how this whole triangle was worked out in this situation. Three, we can say that Solomon was practicing the expression, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You know, I understand culture. I understand our culture. I understood my culture when I got saved. However, we need to be careful when we try to be relevant. We try to do what the culture is doing because it can really put us in a precarious situation with our relationship with the Lord. God is a merciful God. And He doesn't hammer us as soon as we do something wrong. He really wants us to come to Him because we desire Him. He wants us to love Him freely. So, sure, would would there be a lot more good people in the world if every time we did wrong, God would take His hammer and bonk us on the head and go, oh man, I don't want to do that again. God wants us to do the right thing because He wants us to have a relationship with us. He doesn't want us to do it out of fear. He wants us to really do it out of love. But sometimes we have to learn painful lessons. Verse 2. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. The high places. The high places were places where, whether it was followers of God or followers of false gods, would go up to these high elevations. I don't know about you, but I used to, for a few years, I lived in Pennsylvania. Some of those rolling hills and those mountainous areas, boy, when you're up there and it's like you're closer to the sky and civilization is below you, it really is breathtaking. So I can understand how these primitive beasts, some people feel closer to God when they get up to that elevation. I get it, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? I get it. I get the cultural thing back then. Um... Remember, at this point in time, and let me just give you a little setting: the tabernacle was in Gibeon, and the ark of the Lord was in Jerusalem, and the temple wasn't built yet. So was, this was an interim period. God tolerated this behavior uh, of the Israelites to uh, worship Yahweh, right? God, the real God, and before this time, the patriarchs, right? The um, you know Noah and Abraham. I mean, they sacrificed, and sometimes they sacrificed at high elevations. But God eventually desired centralized worship, and that's where the whole temple thing comes in. Right? When that comes in, God said, this is where I want you to worship. See, this this idea of holiness, and we get afraid of the word holiness. We think that we have to be perfect. That's not what holiness means. It means to be separate. So there's got to be a lot of ways about us where we're separate from the world. We live in the world. We, we fellowship amongst the world. But we, in our lives, we have to be separate. And this is what God desired. Here was the problem, (laughs) even after the temple, the Jewish people would still go up to these high places, and we'll read this later on in the history, they would be a little sneaky, they'd go up to the high places, build their altars, instead of going where God said, come see me in Jerusalem, I mean, they could have prayed, but they started sacrificing in these high places, and what they started to do is they started emulating their pagan neighbors. Now they weren't sacrificing to God anymore. There was this desire for some reason to sacrifice to all these different gods. Now Solomon did the same thing. He had all these wives. A lot of them weren't converted to uh, Judaism and they still had their polytheistic beliefs and Solomon started to build these places for his wives. He didn't want them to be unhappy and they weren't gonna convert. So he started getting caught up in their worship. Do you, do you see the this, this, this slippery slope? You know, put on my other hat, when we study law and criminal law and the Supreme Court and federal courts, the courts always talk about a slippery slope. You know, how much power should we give law enforcement? Well, if we keep giving them power, there's a slippery slope towards fascism. As believers, when we start to play fast and loose, loose with God's commands and start looking at them as suggestions, we, we, we go down the slippery slope of apostasy. Won't happen in a year, probably won't happen in five years, but one day, like Solomon, in Ecclesiastes, he'll be looking back at his life and say, what did I do? What the heck did I do? God gave me the gift of wisdom. Pretty sad. So verse 3, it says Solomon loved the Lord, except this is what he did. He loved the Lord. The Bible says it, I believe it. But he also loved his pagan wives. And eventually, when the two were competing, something had to give. And it was his relationship with the Lord that actually broke. G. Campbell Morgan said, The perils of mixed motives and a divided heart are terrible indeed. I don't care that this was written 3,000 years ago. This is something, it could have been written yesterday or this morning. Certainly something that we need to take heed of. It also, to me, it reminds me of when we kind of think this seems like a good idea at the time without testing it with prayer, without testing it with the Word, it seems like a good idea. Well, maybe if we prayed about it at some time, the Lord would reveal, maybe even through another believer, that it's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. Eventually, God does deal with Solomon. He does punish him. And Solomon's own actions punish himself. We read that in Ecclesiastes. I don't think anybody forced him to write that. He wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he, I think it was a warning to the rest of us. It doesn't matter how much you get. I had it all. And I was unhappy. Verse 4. It says, Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? So Solomon offers a thousand burnt offerings. Now understand, this wasn't wasted food. I mean, Chuck Smith describes it as like a, a feast, a barbecue. You know, barbecue and, you know, when we sacrifice something to the Lord, it wasn't, you know, there's this idea that you have to be morbid and somber to worship the Lord. When we come to church, we have to have long faces and be unhappy. No. Celebrating, it's a celebration. You know, coming to God is a great thing. He's God. Right? So he does this. And the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream. And, and this is amazing because Solomon put some skin in the game. He offered a thousand burnt offerings must have been very expensive. Actually, in the last month, I had a discussion with a few people about fasting because they were really troubled about a decision. Now, sometimes people come to me, and I, I, have, I can have a quick answer. I can have an answer that helps them. Sometimes they come to me, and I realize that even, you know, I need to tell them, and I always tell people to pray, but this is something that I don't want to give you a flip and answer on, and then it goes wrong on you. really need you to pray about this. And to some, I've said, really, why don't you fast? And there's two instances... One was amazing, after some amount of fasting, what the Lord did in that situation. And I looked at it as a a direct result, and I rejoiced with the family. Whenever we devote ourselves to God and sacrifice, he will speak to us. We're just saying to God, Lord, I desire you. I want you. I want communion with you. I tell you what the Bible says, that if you do say that with your heart, not just your lips, he'll never turn you down. I've gone through many scripture references uh, regarding that. Are you struggling? Fast, give something up, sacrifice. Show him that you have some skin in the relationship. Show him that you're giving your, him your best. Show him that you're serious about him. Now, sometimes, and I, I've been there as a, as a young believer. When something goes wrong, I immediately pick up the phone to call somebody, and that's good. Call your mentor. Call a friend. A Christian but maybe not immediately. I think we need to train those that we're discipling to go to God first. Because then sometimes it can hurt us. We can almost get a Jesus complex. Hey, I'm the person everybody goes to when they're in trouble. That's bad too. That's not good for the mentor or the pastor or or whoever. Pick up the phone after you've spent some time with the Lord. Now, if somebody's choking again, to death, pick up 911 and pray, but definitely pick up 911 and get yourself some help. But you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying here. So the first thing that happens is, or after Solomon's sacrifices, God says, What shall I give you? Now imagine God saying to you, What shall I give you? Talk about an open-ended question. God didn't give him parameters. He didn't give him guidelines, he just said, what should I give you? <laughs> How would we respond to that? Well, uh, really, brand new jet black Lexus would be nice, Lord. Um, I mean, what would we ask for? Ageless skin and beauty, I mean, what comes to mind? And, and honestly, if you go home, don't call it out, and you ask yourself in the car alone, if, real quickly, what would, I, what would I respond? It'll probably tell you if you're in the flesh or you're in the spirit. depending on what your response is. I have to tell you that when we answer, would there be any connection to the Lord in any way or would it just be a fleshly pursuit? Unfortunately, the prosperity gospel is teaching people to pray like that. But that's not the way, it's kind of funny because that's not what what Solomon asked for. And I'll go into that a little bit more in a moment. I've said this before from the pulpit and I told my son this. I want him to have a double portion that I have spiritually. I want people to say, who's Pastor Joe? Oh, is he the father of that kid Josiah who's on fire for the Lord? Okay, now I know who he is. To me, that'd be fine. You know, I mean, I, I, if, I, if the Lord took me today, I'd lived a full life. You know, I really don't want anything for myself. Uh, I just want to see the church continue. I want to see young people rise up and take ownership. I want to see, you know, what Jesus Christ started in Jamesburg continue. It's all I'm looking for, you know, simple things. So how would we respond? Let's look at let's look at how the king responds. Verse 6. Remember, I told you he's a mixed bag. This is awesome. Check this out. Frame this, memorialize it. And Solomon said, you have, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours? That is, that's out of sight. And very humble for a king. A lot of these kings couldn't care. Curse God. I'm the king. I could do whatever I want. They just were so lifted up with pride. Here's Solomon. Um, he's already got his feet wet when it comes to leadership. He's got, a, he's got a lot of power. And he's saying to God, I'm like a little kid in front of you, Lord. So he says a few things, if I could paraphrase it. By the way, that attitude changes over time. Number one, I've noticed how good you were to my father David. However, acknowledging David's uh, obedience to the word as a precursor or as a prerequisite. Two, I'm the king. However, I feel like a little child with such a great responsibility. Lord, I don't really know how to be a king. I just started this thing. I need your help. And three, Lord, help me to do a good job in your eyes and for the sake of your people. Help me not to mess this up. You know, I, I asked the Lord when I became a senior pastor, I had men I respected. I'm like, uh, what do I know about being a pastor? I kind of, I was like, Lord, I, just for the sake of the people, <laughs> help me to do a good job. Uh, you want to, you know, you don't just say, you take some position and you think, well, I can handle this. That's crazy. Especially if we're believers, that shouldn't be our attitude. Verse nine, Solomon asked for understanding or a hearing heart. Again, this is not just hearing with the ears. Remember Jesus said, You know, do you have ears to hear? Of course we have ears to hear, Jesus. No, 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 Do you have ears to hear spiritually? Not that something that goes up through the auditory nerve and into the brain and gets stored somewhere or gets flushed back out at night, but actually that it, 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 it permeates who you are, that you hear what the Lord is saying and you want to understand it and you want to be obedient to it. What does the Bible say about somebody who's a hearer and not a doer, James? You're wasting your time. Verse 10, and the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for long life for yourself, nor asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have given, also I've given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. And verse 14, so if you walk in my ways, remember it's a conditional statement, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Now for anybody who gets down on themselves, looks in the mirror and doesn't like what they see. They think they're a loser or all your life somebody told you or somebody left you or you've got emotional scars in your life. And this goes for anybody. David sinned. And when David sinned, he sinned greatly. But look what's written about him. See, David knew how to repent. God didn't look at David. You know what's sad? Sometimes Christians read the Bible. Oh, here's that guy, adultery and murder. God didn't look at him like that because he forgave his sin. There were consequences of those sins, don't get me wrong, but I love the Bible because it's just so frank, it's so honest, and when we read it, we can look at this and say, gee, God can use me. He used these people. That's, to me, the blessing in all that. So, God sees Solomon's, you know, heart at the time, and as a result, blesses him further with riches on top of wisdom. Now, I have to say it because it's out there. It's in your face in Christianity. It's everywhere, the prosperity gospel. They basically say that, ask for riches and demand it. See, I, th- I find that funny because Solomon didn't ask for riches. So if you actually follow their logic, what you have to pretend is that you don't want riches and say, Lord, I don't want riches, deceiving yourself so that God gives you riches. It's, it's of like you're doing reverse psychology to God. I, 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 can, I have to believe that these pastors don't read their Bibles at all. They just, they just towed the party line. It's just bizarre, okay? Why would God give Solomon riches anyway? Because God, uh, Solomon's wealth reflected the prosperity of the nation. did you ever think of that? Why did he get these riches? Because this was a time that Israel was going to prosper and the king was part of Israel. He was a de facto spiritual leader. You ever think about why he got the riches? Well, God just felt like bestowing riches upon the guy? He was a reflection of the people that he served. Impressive, isn't it? That just was where it was. Under David, it was struggle. Under Solomon, Solomon means it's a form of the word peace. There was enlarging of borders, there was prosperity. And we see the, the nation of Israel that would go into these stages, almost like the economic cycles, right? This was the, the blessing. Number one, the wisdom that Solomon asked for and was granted. In addition, two, honor, riches and a reputation of greatness that Solomon didn't ask for. Here's the caveat. Right? Here's the, the point here: that he had to continue walking in the ways of God, or it comes to an end. It comes to an end. Here's something even more amazing. At the end of Solomon's life, what did the people see? They saw the stalls the horses in the stalls, they saw the weapons, they saw the gold, they saw the temple, they saw the enlarged borders. What did the world see of Solomon? Success, prosperity. What did Solomon see in, in himself at the end? Failure, sin, disobedience. I wish I could take it back. Read Ecclesiastes. And make sure you read it when you're in a good mood, because it's a depressing book. So the world, the fleshly and carnal world, saw Solomon as... This guy's amazing, I wanna be like Solomon. But Solomon in his own heart, when he reflected upon his life, realized that he was a failure spiritually. Isn't that amazing? How God sees things a certain way, but we can see things totally different. So next time you have one of those people that say, God wants you to be rich, try to memorize some of this stuff and and see what they say. Because you can't argue with the scripture. Solomon had a a good beginning, but he had a bad ending. There's a lot of themes in the scriptures about finishing well. 15. And Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings more, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all the servants. What is this a picture of? Joy, gratefulness. I don't think it's just because he got the blessings. I think it's because God spoke to him. Isn't that an awesome thing, brothers and sisters? Come on. When you pray about something and the Lord answers it, and you know that that answer came from the Lord, and it really changes your life or the situation that you've been praying about. Amen? And if you haven't been a Christian that long, give it some time. It'll happen. To me, it's just just the fact that he answered me was, was awesome. But that's what he offers to us. Sometimes we just need to stop and praise God in appreciation. Sometimes we need to praise others. I mean, sometimes we need to appreciate others at times, too. Sometimes we can take each other for granted. Verse 16. Then, now this is a display of Solomon's wisdom, then two women who were harlots, or prostitutes, came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together. There was no one with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom uh, and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed he was not my son whom I had born. And the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. That's pretty awful. But here's one of the major tests of Solomon's wisdom. Now, you know what's amazing? He didn't say, again, the guy starts off great. He didn't say, It's two prostitutes. What are you bothering me with? Get rid of them. I really don't care whose kid it is. He actually listened to the case. Two prostitutes come to the king. Maybe somebody under him was stumped by the problem. Maybe they had compassion. said, only Solomon can answer this one. Prostitution was not acceptable in in God's kingdom or in a nation of Israel that followed God's laws. Um, I think it's amazing that they felt that they could actually approach the king. That's number one. Number two, that he actually heard their complaint. And I think that it showed, too, that justice was meted out to everyone, even to the sinner. So this is a great start for Solomon. Right? Just the way he handles this. And the question is listen, you know, it's it's a horrible thing. It's kidnapping, it's I mean, if you think about the crimes today, but it's somebody was was wrong, and Solomon felt that he needed to fix the issue. And the question is, whose baby was the live one? Verse 23. And the king said, the one says This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. Very graphic. And the one says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, and she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman a living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. Do you know that 3,000 years later we still use the term? <laughs> and sometimes I'm in, I'm in worldly circles or professional cir- circles. I'm like, well, we can't split the baby here. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, well, you, you got a minute? You just said something. I need to talk to you about that. But this happens all the time. You know, this splitting the baby. We 3,000 years later. And the meaning is it's an incredibly difficult problem or an unreasonable decision, but designed to flush out the truth. Something, isn't it? Now, was this a nice way to get to the truth of the investigation? Probably wasn't real nice, but it was awfully effective. And for anyone who's never led anything or anyone, you can't understand leadership until you're put in the hot seat. I'm sure God gave him that wisdom that he asked for and it was it was brash it was uh it was on the edge but he did it I'm sure he wasn't planning I'm sure he realized it would flush out the truth and sometimes you have to do and say hard things to get to the truth to meet out justice Last verse. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. One verse, very powerful. The king received awe. Now, some probably awed the king because he was a cool guy. He was a great guy and a great leader. Maybe those that weren't God-fearing. But think about this. The king received awe. And honor, but the people knew, at least most of them, that God was backing him. What an application to all of us this evening. If we call ourselves Christians and we're good at what we do, every single person in this room is good at what they do in some way, either in the world. In addition, if you're a believer, you have spiritual gifts, so you're doubly blessed. We need always to give God the glory. Let me repeat that. We need always to give God the glory. I am impressed by other Christians and their diverse gifts. Their, their natural abilities and their, their spiritual gifts and I'm blown away by that and I'm so I'm in amazement when they go out to the world and they go to venues that I couldn't break into and they use their gifts to reach people. We need to celebrate that the fact that we're all different but we all come together for the same purpose. Always give God glory. It's never about us. When it becomes about us, that's when strife sets in all the time. We should all be successful, honorable, and have integrity because we bear the name of God if we call ourselves Christians. It's not for ourselves. Before we close, I just want to take a look at some key differences between David and Solomon. You may not agree with me on all of these, and that's okay. Okay, This isn't sacred scripture. just want to play around with this. David worked hard and sacrificed for what he had. Solomon, it seemed like things came easier to him. David was a warrior. Solomon was a gentleman. Even in the slayings he had other people do it, he was a diplomat. David seemed to live within his means, Solomon loved extravagance. I'm looking at the entire picture here, not just the early days. David expanded his borders through bloodshed, Solomon expanded through treaties. David was often pragmatic and simple, Solomon more of an intellect, used more of the wisdom gift that he was given. David was a regular guy for the most part, Solomon more of a celebrity, became a celebrity and a politician. David was known for his heart. Solomon, in the end, was known more for his ex- appearance and the externals and the extravagance. Just saying. Three points. Solomon laid the foundation for life and ministry and leadership while at the same time laying the foundation for the temple. Think about that. There's a parallel thing going on here. We all lay foundations in life, folks. The temple's foundation, however, remained strong throughout the years, but Solomon's foundation started to crumble because he had some bad stones and bad mortar in there. In ministry, many start off well, and I've seen this, but eventually move away from God's word and their empires start to crumble. Now, most of us here are not pastors or monarchs, but we can make the same application to our lives. When we start laying the blocks and the foundation of what we do in life and what we believe and how we're going to behave and how we're going to operate from here and whether we're going to adhere to the word of God or not, we are building the edifice our spiritual edifice, and one day we'll look back. And we can either look back in Ecclesiastes and and tearfully and woefully, or we can look back in joy and say, you know, I ran the race well. Whenever the Lord comes for me, it's okay. F. Buchner said, King Solomon was one of the wisest fools who ever wore a crown. (laughs) That's great. not gonna steal it. That was an awesome quote. Let me clear that up a little bit, again. Pastor Jerry, that's confusing. He was the wisest man, but he didn't always use his wisdom. Just like we don't always use our spiritual gifts, do we, as believers? When we do, we're on fire, and it's awesome. When we don't, we have to stop and ask ourselves, what went wrong? Because the Lord didn't move, we did. So Solomon had this incredible gift of wisdom. At times, he was spot on. He was on fire. He was glorifying the Lord. And at times, he was playing the fool and eventually led to bad things happening. The title for today's, tonight's message is Laying a Foundation for Life. Solomon laid the foundation for his life. What type of foundation are we laying? Again, the Bible's clear. You see a lot of people right out of the gate. Even in ministry, right out of the gate. You know what's sad? Christians follow a lot of fads. They follow a lot of fads in Christianity. A lot of them don't last long and then they're left holding the bag. What's more important than anything is finishing strong. I've seen a lot of people like comets out of the gate, and they're getting sloppy, they're running ahead of the Lord, and they don't finish strong. To me, I'm more impressed by somebody who's my pastor, who's been pastoring for over 30 years. I know what happens. I see what happens to pastors who do this. As the decades increase, Satan finds something to destroy them with. And I'm just pleased to be that I was sent from him. So brothers and sisters, we don't have to be pastors, we don't have to be kings. As believers, it's more important that we finish strong. Consider the foundation that you're laying in your own life. Let's
0: pray. You've been listening to, to every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey.